Good morning. I'm Liz Brinkman, by the way, and it's so great to be here with you. And I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 26 from the Common English Bible. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have actually advanced the gospel. The whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else knows that I'm in prison for Christ. Most of the brothers and sisters have had more confidence through the Lord to speak the word boldly and bravely because of my jail time. Some certainly preach Christ with jealous and competitive motives, but others preach with good motives. They are motivated by love because they know that I am put here to give a defense of the gospel. The others preach Christ because of their selfish ambition. They are insecure, hoping to cause me more pain while I'm in prison. What do I think about this? Just this, since Christ is proclaimed in every possible way, whether from dishonest or true motives, I'm glad, and I'll continue to be glad. I'm glad because I know that this will result in my release through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is my expectation and hope that I won't be put to shame in anything. Rather, I hope with daring courage that Christ's greatness will be seen in my body now as always, whether I live or die. Because for me, living serves Christ and dying is even better. I continue to live in this world. I get results from my work. But I don't know what I prefer. I'm torn between the two because I want to leave this life and be with Christ, which is far better. However, it's more important for me to stay in this world for your sake. I'm sure of this. I will stay alive and remain with all of you to help you progress the joy of your faith and to increase your pride in Jesus Christ through my presence when I visit you again. My name is Megan, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. We are beginning a new Advent series today. Um, called Intense Simplicities, which I realize may sound like kind of a weird title, um, but this actually comes from a quote. Um, when I was growing up, I had a quote wall in my bedroom of all, all the favorite quotes I read places, and this was one of my favorites. It comes from Winston Churchill, who, who once said, out of intense complexities, intense simplicities emerge. Out of intense complexities, intense simplicities emerge. I, I have no idea what Churchill meant by that. I don't know the context that statement came in. Um, but it's always so striking to me. The, the world is complicated, and life is complicated, and so many questions we ask of faith are complicated. Uh, yet, we, we know that everything that exists in the world is composed of a few fundamental particles. 
right? And similarly with Christian faith, beneath all of that complicated appearance and kind of the complicated conversations we have about Christianity, at the heart of it, it's all made up of a few fundamental elements. There's so few and so simple a child could state them, but the whole world of faith is built on them. So what we're talking about this Advent is about Christianity's fundamental particles. What are those intense simplicities that are at the heart of Christianity? I invite you to join me in prayer as we begin. Jesus, here we are at the beginning of Advent in a season of darkness. Literally, a season when we are aware anew of the darkness that expands in all directions in our world. But your name makes the darkness tremble as we sang this morning. We pray that you would give witness to yourself and what you say and do in this space. We commit this time to you. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the things that makes life so complicated, I think, is that we have so many competing desires to manage when we go through life. Um, We, we want to know God, but we also want pizza for lunch. We, we want jobs that we love. We want bigger houses. We also want more time with the kids. We want to be a good person who loves their neighbors, but we also want to spend all of Saturday golfing or on the Oculus. You know, all of these desires are in us at once, and they're all kind of pulling against each other. And Jesus, um, during the Sermon on the Mount, makes this statement when he's talking about all the things we worry about in life, like all the cares we carry, all of these things that compete. And he says to his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the rest of that stuff, that'll be given to you as well. This is one of my, my favorite things that Jesus says, because every time I hear it, I feel this kind of sense of clarity and peace like, like, if all of us could just align with that one desire, there would just be so much clarity to life. But the question is, how do you get to that kind of focus? Like, managing this kind of swirling pool of desires, how do we come, become the kind of people who truly do desire one thing, who are seeking one thing? If there's one person I know that exemplifies that, that kind of, like, single-hearted seeking, it's the Apostle Paul. I've been reading through Paul's writings very slowly this year, and there's, this maybe more than anything else is what strikes me about Paul. In the passage that Lydge just read for us, let me just recap what the situation is. Um, Paul is in prison, not prison with high-definition television. He's, he's in the dark. He's shackled to a wall or shackled to a prison guard. And if that, those conditions weren't miserable enough, he says, his own kind of allies, the people who should be his friends, are out there trying to make his life worse, like deliberately doing things that they hope will cause him pain. This is not a great situation for Paul. And yet this is Paul's response. I just want to read a few of these verses again. What do I think about all this? This is what I think. Since Christ is proclaimed in every possible way, I'll be glad and continue to be glad. It's my expectation and hope I won't be put to shame in anything. Rather, I hope with daring courage that Christ's greatness will be seen in my body now as always, whether I live or die. Because for me, living serves Christ and dying is even better. If I continue to live in this world, I'll get results from my work, but I don't know what I prefer. 
I'm torn between the two because I want to leave this life and be with Christ, which is far better, but it's more important for me to stay in the world for your sake. This is what Paul thinks about this complicated, messy situation he's in. This is the kind of radical freedom of somebody who only wills, only desires, is only seeking one thing. If all that Paul wants is for Jesus to be proclaimed, then he he can look down like every turn that life could take, every outcome, the situation he could have. And as he looks down each road and each path, he's like, Jesus could be proclaimed here or here or here. So, hey, if Jesus could be proclaimed on any path, any path is fine. That's the freedom of someone with one single-hearted desire. To live serves Christ. To die is to be with Christ. There's no wrong road, so there's nothing to fear. That's Paul's position. And just a little later in Philippians chapter 3, he goes even further. And he makes this entire list for the people he's writing to of all of the things in in his life that have ever gone right. Like every, every asset he has, like every, everything, his family, his education, his achievements. And then he says this in chapter 3, verse 7. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. Even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've lost everything for him. But what I've lost, I think of as sewer trash, so I might gain Christ and be found in him. What do you think of when you hear statements like that? I mean, this kind of rhetoric is all over Paul's letter. I don't know about you, but the only thing I can think when I read statements like that is this guy is really radical. Like, radical is the word we use for people who only want one thing that they will give them their whole selves to and will live for and die for. And frankly, most, most of us don't know what to do with radical people like this. But before we kind of make any kind of judgments or assumptions on what we think of Paul and his radicality, um, let, let's just name the fact that Paul is the single most unlikely Christian radical in all of history. Paul thought Jesus was the ultimate liar and deceiver. He thought the story of Jesus' resurrection was dangerous, it was a hoax, and he was hunting and he was killing Jesus' followers when he met Jesus on the road. If you go back and look at the story of the first meeting between Jesus and Paul, it's not a particularly happy encounter. First of all, Jesus strikes Paul blind just by showing up, and then he introduces himself by saying, hi, I'm Jesus, the one you've been harassing. Um, Meanwhile, um, Jesus tells Paul, hey, uh, you've got to go to the city, and I'm going to give you orders. You should wait for the orders. And and God also speaks to this Christian in in a different city, Ananias, and tells Ananias, you're going to have to go give Paul orders for me, and he doesn't want to do it. And you know the argument that Jesus makes to Ananias about why he should go give Paul orders? He says, I know you don't like this guy. I know he's been killing your people, but don't worry. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is not the warmest and friendliest of opening encounters. 
And yet, decades later, the guy who had that starting point with Jesus can write this letter of Philippians where it's clear he's suffering incredibly, and yet he's not speaking as somebody who's been reluctantly enlisted to the cause. He sounds like a lovesick teenager who wouldn't want to be anywhere else, who would die for this passion he feels. I mean, the question is, what happened to Paul? There's a really simple answer. Paul met somebody. Paul was not introduced to some kind of ethic or principle that he thought would make the world better. I mean, in his description in Philippians, he says, I am willing to die because I want to be with Christ. In chapter 3, he says, I'm not afraid to lose anything because everything I've ever had, I consider garbage compared with knowing Jesus. I mean, have you ever felt this way about somebody? Like in the most passionate, lovesick teenage moment of your life? Like you could lose it all and it would be fine as long as you were with this person. You could lose everything and you could still be whole as long as they're with you. Now, recall that Paul has only met Jesus in person one time, only once in his entire life, and it is a complicated and painful meeting. But that that meeting moment, that kind of dreadful encounter, that that was only the beginning of a decades-long relationship. And the thing that makes Paul really interesting, I think, is that Paul is different from the rest of the Jesus followers and disciples. Peter, John, James, all of those guys, they got to spend years with Jesus. They walked beside him. They got to know him. But Paul's relationship with Jesus unfolds entirely when Jesus is not physically present. And yet, Paul, a brilliant man who has been educated with one of the best educations the ancient world could provide— Paul, who once thought that Jesus' followers were a plague on the world, comes to believe that he not only knows Jesus personally, but that knowing Jesus has been the greatest joy of his life and is worth everything he has to give. Now, if this were only Paul, we might be tempted to just write this off as one of those weird anomalies. Like, every once in a while, there's just a strange person that stuff happens to and like who knows what drives them. But the first few centuries of Christian history are literally full of thousands of Jesus followers who willingly walked to terrible deaths for the exact same reason that Paul articulates here. Um, One of the best attested of these stories is about two women named Perpetua and Felicity. If you've never heard these stories, um, Perpetua and Felicity are one of the best attested stories of the early church, in part because we actually know about them from two sources. We have eyewitness accounts, um, but we also have um, parts of Perpetua's own diary, um, where she journaled about her experiences and what was happening to her. Um, Perpetua was a 22-year-old woman, a North African noble. Um, She was recently married, and she was nursing a newborn infant. Um, Felicity was her servant, who was eight months pregnant. And both of these young women were preparing for their baptism. They were new Christians just preparing to be baptized when they were arrested for their Christian faith. 
And Perpetua writes in the diaries that she kept during this whole period, we're talking about, about 200 AD, um, she writes about sitting in the, the kind of deep darkness of these prisons. She talks about being harassed by the guards. She talks about her father showing up at prison and just begging her to recant, just say you don't know Jesus and you can be out of this. And she talks most of all about the most painful part, she says, which is being separated from her infant child. Um, Felicity, meanwhile, who was eight months pregnant when arrested, gives birth, a really difficult birth, in prison, with guards standing by, kind of watching and mocking. And two days after Felicity gives birth, Felicity and Perpetua walk into the Colosseum together, and they're killed side by side with their friends, while shouting out loud, encouraging people around them to become followers of Jesus and keep the faith. The, the moment is such a scene, it's such a like, profound moment, that even the crowds that are watching this, that are used to math deaths and the Colosseums, the crowds get uneasy watching this happen. Where, where does that kind of purifying, clarifying single-mindedness come from? Well, when she's questioned by the guards who are making fun of her while she's giving birth, um, Felicity gives her answer. Felicity, the servant, says, I'm glad to suffer for the one who suffered for me and now suffers in me. That's her account. I mean, these two young mothers are not ideologues. They're not willing to give up their infants and die for principles or religious fear. The only reason they are here in this moment is devotion to a person. Like Paul, these women who live hundreds of years after Jesus, who've never met him, believe that they've met him in some way so profound that it commands all of their loyalty. This is the kind of feeling that Jesus brought out in people. He brought it out during his ministry, his life on earth, but he continued to bring it out in people centuries after he was last seen. And what moved these people was not fear. Nobody was threatened by Jesus. Being with Jesus did not leave people more afraid. What moved people about Jesus, they were moved by the spirit of devotion, they, they saw something in them that they had seen nowhere else. I mean, what was it? Well, I, I don't know. I can only speculate based on reading the Gospels, but here's a few things that come to mind for me. Um, number one, Jesus saw people in their worst moments. He, he saw his friend Peter deny him three times, even after being warned that he was going to do it. He saw Paul literally kill people that Jesus loved, his friends. Jesus saw people at their worst, but he saw them without flinching and without condemning. And after the worst was done, he still looked at them and said, I want you. For people like women and like slaves who had the lowest kind of position in society, who were treated mostly like property, Jesus gave them this incredible dignity. He said to them, I am on a mission and I have a role for you in that mission. Jesus sat and wept with people even when he knew that joy was coming just 10 minutes around the corner. Jesus was fierce in the presence of evil. He drove it out, but he was also gentle and trustworthy with children. 
Jesus wasn't fearless. The only fearless people are people with nothing to lose. But Jesus never gave in to fear. He never stepped back from a fight that needed to be had. Jesus could be surrounded by mobs, just crowds of people, and hear the voice of the one person out of that crowd who needed him the most. He was never so busy, even on the way to saving the world, he was never so busy that he wouldn't stop and pay attention to that one. Jesus was a warrior who washed feet, who served food, who embraced lepers that no one else would get near. Jesus was a leader who never used his power to serve himself, who never swayed from what was right, who never asked for a sacrifice he wasn't willing to make first, and who suffered so that other people wouldn't have to. I mean, have you ever met a person like this? Have you ever even imagined a person like this? Like, men and women, young and old, had the same feeling around Jesus, that wherever he was, that was exactly where they wanted to be. Whatever he was doing was the thing most worth doing. I mean, which leaves us, I think, to the very simple question at the foundation of Christianity. Have you met Jesus? Is this someone you wish to know? I mean, Perpetua and Felicity, they never met him once, and yet they knew him, and they found him worth their entire lives and everything they had to give. And I know that any rational person in the 21st century has to ask themselves the question, how can a first century person be known? I mean, Jesus sounds great, but how could I know him? I mean, we are bound by time and space, and everything we understand and know is confined by that same fabric of time and space. But the one who made that fabric of time and space stands outside it. He's capable of moving through it as he wills. And in every age, in every era of history, Jesus has kept showing up, stepping through that fabric of space and time, and showing himself to people. Um, Just a couple days ago, I was up in Canada, and someone told me the story of a Canadian Mennonite I'm still living in Canada, who grew up in in some country somewhere around the world. I can't remember the the details of the country. Um, But this person had never encountered a Christian before. And and as a young person, one night, this, this person had a dream where a man showed up in the dream and introduced himself as Jesus. And the man said to her in the dream, someday you're gonna go to another country across the world and someone's gonna introduce us. That was the dream. Um, so, so this person who had this dream uh, came to the U.S. eventually on a trip and was walking down the street in, in a major city and heard someone out of the blue talking about this person, Jesus. So they stopped and heard the story and became a Christian. I mean, Jesus goes where he wills. He goes where he wills. But he can also be invited This is one of the things he tells his disciples. He says, I'm always going to be standing outside the door knocking. I don't have to be conjured. There's no magic tricks here. Just open the door and let me in. And this problem we have of all these conflicting desires that roll around in us can't be solved by talking ourselves into caring about the right thing. 
mean, that, that's a lot of us, that's our instinct. It's like grit your teeth and like will to will the right thing. That is not the thing that Christianity is based on, not a force of will. It just is something that happens when you encounter Jesus and are so dazzled by him that the whole world gets reordered. It's just something that happens when you meet Jesus as Paul and Felicity and Perpetua met Jesus. Um, people ask me all the time, um, this just happened to me last week, like how I came to be a pastor. And I, I'm always interested to hear what answer comes out of my mouth because there's a lot of ways you can tell stories. Um, but let me give it to you in just a couple lines. There was a time in my life when I was in a dark place where I felt completely alone. And then someone entered the darkness with me and I felt a presence there. He introduced himself as Jesus. He lit up the darkness. And there was a moment in my life where I woke up and realized I would live for him and die for him. I realized there is nothing I wanted from the rest of my life but to spend it introducing other people to him because he was just that amazing. So all I can do is just add my voice to Paul and Perpetua and Felicity. There are many good and beautiful things in the world, but the best thing I have ever encountered is him. Wherever he goes, goodness and beauty follow him because he made everything good and beautiful. And if his word can be taken, and I believe it is, he's standing right outside the door of all of our lives right now, knocking, wanting to be for each one of us what he has been for generations and billions of people before us. A hero, a leader, a healer, a warrior against the darkness, a companion, a friend. You don't have to be sure that he's there. You don't have to be sure that he means it to open the door. You can just open it and see what happens. And some of us maybe have had that door open a long time. We invited him in a long time ago, but maybe it's been years since we remembered he was in the house. Maybe for us the door is open, but the moment has come to wake up, remember he's there, and to ask him what he has to say. I want you to just spend a moment with me if you feel led, just either inviting that door to be opened or just taking a moment to look around the room inside yourself and see what's there. Let's pray together. Jesus, these people here in this room today are my friends. And I know that you already know them, and I know that you're already crazy about them. And that the reason you called me and summoned me was not just that you wanted me, but that you wanted them. You are standing outside the door of each one of their houses, each one of their lives, knocking. saying that you have things to give wherever their house is empty, wherever their darkness is deep. 
you have something amazing and disruptive to bring into that space. So Jesus, we bring you our mix of faith and doubt. We kind of believe that you're there and we kind of aren't sure. Take our belief, take our unbelief and meet us in them both. Show yourself in ways that we can recognize and understand. Make yourself known. Because to meet you, to see you, is to love you. And to love you is to have our lives turned inside out. An adventure greater than we ever imagined for ourselves. Jesus, we invite you in. Amen.